This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Thank you for coming, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for short tales from the mothership. Um, sci-fi microfiction. Very short stories. Uh, it's inspired... Uh, by the work of sci-fi magazine editor George Hay. In the 1970s, he challenged all the great science fiction authors of of that time to send in a complete sci-fi story, but complete yet such that it could fit on a postcard. And that often translates to maybe 250 words or less. And that's what we've done tonight. We're telling original stories that are 250 words or less, here at the Mothership, here at Geisel Library at UC San Diego, that iconic William Pereira building that is so UFO chic. I'm so grateful that you're all here this evening. Um, if it's okay with you, I'll read the first one. It's, it's one that I wrote. And my name is Scott Paulson, and I work here at Geisel Library, and I'm an alumnus of, of UC San Diego. Sleep was the treasure that the aliens sought, a safe, natural sleep. Not sleep from voltage-induced coma, not sleep from synthesized serotonins or harmful hypodermic injections, nor from hazardous herbal broths described in ancient otherworldly medical texts. Sleep, an honest sleep period, is all they sought. They heard about a harp therapist on Earth who could tune her strings into a magical modality. They heard about it via an old earthly AM radio commercial that they intercepted a century ago. Hibernate with Hana the healing harpist. Suitable nap time guaranteed. They felt this offer. They felt this offer was worth traveling through space and time. Upon arrival, they were relieved to note that Hana was blind, greatly relieved as their far-from-humanoid appearance had been known to alarm. They were also relieved that their audiophone request for an appointment, spliced together from segments of the old radio commercial, was pleasing to Hana's ear. As planned, Hana's head cold and congested sinuses were sufficient enough to mask their scent. No cause for suspicion on any and all fronts. Hannah played for them. She tuned and detuned her harp to find the right personalized mode for hypnotic help. This was a long, challenging session for Hannah. She planned to charge double. And just like the radio ad promised, rest assured, sleep will come. The aliens slept so deeply that they didn't hear the arrival of the paramedics. Hana was spared the details of the alien nature of the incident. So far, authorities are allowing the sleep to continue. Thank you. And we've got, you know, a good turnout of readers today. Uh, and uh, 
I think what I really like right now is to ask Gregory Louis to read. Gregory is here, never fear. And yes, use the microphone. Do I have to do introductions? You're no. very welcome to introduce yourself. Hi, I am Greg Louis. I am a third year speculative design student here at UCSD. I'm also head of a writing group on campus called Wordsmiths, and we're looking for a room here at Geisel. Yeah. <laughs> I want to raise this for you, too. I saw you in a room just the other week with all your friends. <laughs> there we are. Okay. So, my story is called And Yet. So, if just for a day our ancestors would visit all these islands and saw everything, how would they feel about the changes of our land? Could you just imagine if they saw ruined highways over their sacred grounds? How would they feel about this drowned land? To know we let this happen, that we let the world drown? Tears would come from each other's eyes as they realized that our people almost went extinct, that we lost our home. Would they smile or cry? The ocean came up, inch by inch, tear by tear, as the northern glaciers melted and the coral died. The reef offshore died first, our children watching as coral bleached and fish floated, trash clogging their throats before the sickness drove them into the depths. Eventually, the ocean swallowed even the shores, forcing us to the mainland or the slopes of our sacred mountains. These people split into two, those who had to abandon themselves to blend in with Western civilization, and those who dwelt on the slopes, regaining what we lost after the overthrow of the monarchy, learning to commune with the land. Now, as the world cools once more and the oceans retreat, our people come back to the lands we've abandoned, two people uniting. What shall come in the future? Cry for the gods, cry for the people, cry for the land that was taken away, first by the colonists and then by the ocean itself. And then, yet, you'll find Hawaii. Thank you, Gregory. Elizabeth Peng is in the house. Where is she? Oh, here she is. Come join me. And I think I might change this microphone for you. Step oh. right through. We'll just lower that's it true. Bit. I am a little bit short. No, that's not true. <laughs> is that good for you? Test. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. My name is Elizabeth Pang. I am a third-year literature writing major. I currently work at Geisel Library as a circulation assistant, and I am affiliate with Wordsmiths. Mm -hmm. Tonight, I am going to read you a story called Why I Do Not Wish. In a grove near from where we stand, there was a child who ate a shooting star. It was no bigger than the head of a coxcomb flower. And from its gossamer center, one could see a beating heart warped incomplete by human wishes. This child would soon pass away, and though their limbs became a sulfurous color, their belly swelled to the shape of a monk's wooden bell. Many came to ogle this misshapen body, and as if preening, the belly would balloon larger beneath such attention. 
The child's belly would grow until the crowns of eucalyptus trees competed with this engorged shape. And then simply, like the way thread hurtles through a needle's iris, the body of the child floated away. Some say the ocean gale seduced this shell, but the body landed, not too far, upon a library that resembled an inside-out jaw. With no one to kindle its vanity, the belly shrunk back to its former size. It shedded its skin, revealing what was left of the star, crystallized and hardened by young blood. Every eve of an hour, entranced by its glimmer, songbirds would descend upon this gem and tap it in wonder. This would produce a deep, melodious sound. And it is that same chime we hear on mornings where fog wed locks to our breasts. And we must remember that the hour starts not with our actions, but with the words we conjure from our hearts. Thank you so much. And I think... Sienna Heminger is in the house. Sienna, here you are. This is in the format of something I'm sure a lot of us here are familiar with. The form of a campus email. (laughs) A campus announcement, an official, official one. The Republic of UC San Diego, Campus Notice. Sector 2 of New California, San Diego. From the Office of the Chancellor, Safety Concerns. October 13th, 2097. All academics, staff, students, and citizens at UCSD. Subject, Safety Concerns. Entrance into the Geisel Headquarters and the Headquarters Walk will require an added brain scanning chip. Project Description slash Location. On October 16th, 2097, Facilities Management will begin a project to replace the Safety Protocol A for the Geisel Headquarters and parts of Headquarters Walk. The anticipated completion date is December 20th, 2097. The project will provide necessary improvements to security measures inside Geisel Headquarters and for the entirety of Headquarters Walk. Additional security improvements in 6th District slums and the Smear Factory District will occur in the spring of 2098. Immediate Impacts Throughout the duration of the project, there will be short periods of time, 24 hours and during the weekend, where the intersections of Headquarters Walk and the Geisel Headquarters will be completely closed off to public use. The specific date of this closure will be provided as part of the follow-on notice. Please report to your district center and receive the Protocol A brain scan chip before the completion time of the project. If you have not received the chip by the time the entirety of the Safety Protocol A has been completed, you may face immediate termination by Geisel Headquarters Peace Turrets. <laughs> if you have any questions, please contact Facilities Management Project Manager. We greatly appreciate your patience during these activities. From Jackson Steve, Director of the Facilities Management, long live the Republic. Thank you, Sienna. That was great. Oh, Margaret Peggy Harmon's in the house. Into the microphone. Into the microphone. They ate the street people first. We noticed piles of clothes on sidewalks, in doorways. 
But house people didn't miss street people. Towns just seemed cleaner. Eating street people made them bolder, though. When they came after the elderly, we noticed. If your mom is gone without leaving a note, you ask around. They attacked at night so nobody saw them, just people missing. It helped the economy. 80% of our health budget was keeping the elderly up and shuffling. Suddenly, you could get a doctor's appointment. Insurance premiums dropped. They love children. We have to drive our kids everywhere. Schools stopped outdoor recesses. The upside is smaller classes. But children aren't filling, so they return to adults in broad daylight. They have the numbers and that fear edge. Adult onset diabetes disappeared. Again, health costs plummeted. Running is great exercise. <laughs> Their antitoxin digestion and thick hides defeat poisons and guns. Chemicals in food and water weakened our species, but famines are finishing us off. What farmers going out into a field? <laughs> we thought evolution ended with the first human, top of the food chain. Born to privilege, you think you deserve it. But we don't fear dying slowly anymore. They sense our weakness, and before we suffer, they take care of it. What wolves do for elk? They've sharpened up our species. Really, don't feel sorry for us. And a predator will evolve to take them out. And there was a writer who couldn't make it today, uh, uh, Vanessa Christie, but Joshua Chung has agreed to read for her. Thank you, Joshua. <clears throat> Humor me for a bit. <clears throat> it was curiosity that drove me. I admit it freely. Curiosity and nothing more. Satisfied? Well, the castaways were busy when I approached robots and computers and their world-away commanders guiding them. They were elated, dispirited, frustrated, furious, a thousand times a day. Mostly, though, they were just bored. Every day, a mirror of the previous. The same expanse of red outside their narrow windows. The same faces. The same food. They were already less careful of their surroundings. They dared their suits to develop damage necessary for death. I'm not death, in case you're wondering. However... Your ancestors portrayed the two of us as friends or allies. In honesty, we don't have much to say to one another. Heck, if we're co-workers, we're the kind too disinterested to do more than a nod in passing. Hey, 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 something, one of them said. I focus on him. Ah, Alan. Thought he had enough lovers on Earth. Could get by on masturbation alone. 
He was discovering he can't. See, beneath that boredom, he flickered like a switch between lust for Karen and anger at Laura. And then there's Rick. Nothing's out there, Rick said. But, but the sensors are sensitive. They pick up everything, anything, dirt, storms, whatever. You know that, man. You're just bored. There was something, Alan said. Correctly, there was me. Thank you. Wow, for a pinch hitter, that was amazing. He received that story like three minutes ago. <laughs> Bravo, Joshua. I think, you know, Yantina Perry's in the house, and she also uh, agreed to read for somebody who's, who uh, couldn't make it today. Or actually, she agreed to read for a writer who wants someone else <laughs> to read his work. Please join me up here, Yantina. You're reading Yernej Turnsek's piece, mm -hmm. as I recall. And you can put it right on the stand if you want to. Thank you for reading. Sure. Alex woke up in bewilderment. It was a quarter to three in the morning, and he had never felt such an urge to review his dreams. He hastily turned on his holographic computer to stream the latest few gigs of what was already close to a Googleplex bytes of data. The connection was with his synthetic neural network was a bit iffy tonight, but after he adjusted the port, it smoothened out. As his body was shivering from excitement, he started reviewing the file. What he saw would change his life and the lives of everyone else on Enceladus. Tahans appeared to be very large on the scale of galaxies, begins Calix. You know, I was literally staring at my own work I would publish ten years later when working with Prof. Stevens. He recalls that they were like cells building blocks of the universe. I didn't fully understand. How could I? It was only a dream, a bit vague and incomplete. I was looking at this paper, my paper. How crazy that is. And equations appeared, pretty simple actually. And Tahans were breathing contracting and expanding, filling our space-time. The Nobel Prize winner halted for a brief moment and whispered, I simply knew I need to follow my dream. Thank you again. And the author is here. We'll make sure that you two talk. Oh, you know, you know who's in the house? Nadia Migalko. Where are you? Here you are. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, I'm Nadia. This is a short story that is an adaptation of the first part of a screenplay that I've been working on with the same title. The one with the blue eyes. Her mother named her Aya. It was the word they used for water, 
in a prehistoric society that was their home. They had never seen blue eyes, for it was the first time that the mutation had shown itself in the human race. There was a wonder over the future of this child. She grew into an efficient and accurate hunter, found a partner of her liking, and had two children. They did not have the blue eyes. A leader of the neighboring tribe heard about Aya and her blue eyes and decided that she was the one he would take for his breeding. Locke was driven to have her for himself. He felt a calling from his own internal drive. When he took his warriors with him to her settlement, it was only with one aim. Aya was coming back from a hunt when she heard the commotion, and with the dire instincts of a mother, she ran straight for where she knew her children would likely be. She found them quickly, grabbed both, and began searching for her partner. When she found him with her eyes, she felt a deep, panicking pain inside her chest as she saw a spear go through his body. Then instinct kicked in. She ran with her kids towards the one place she knew she could use as a quick hideout. It was a burrow she had used for hiding during a hunt. There was only one thing left to consider. It was their survival. Thank you. Thank you. Is Paige Harris in the house? Well, yes, she is. Paige Harris, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Paige. And this is Bedtime Gothic. The sun goes down, and things on your walls begin to glow. You have never put up any glow-in-the-dark decorations. Do not look directly at them. You're lying in bed, scrolling through your news feed. As soon as you reach the end... Then you can sleep. You don't remember what time you started scrolling. Your body feels so heavy. The news does not end. You eventually fall asleep with the comforting weight of a cat on your chest, purring softly and kneading your skin. You do not own a cat. The flat sheet tangles up around your legs, ensnaring you. Rolling over, you kick the damp, sweaty sheet away and onto the floor, when you next wake up, it is wrapped around your legs once again. You wake up and check the time. It is 3 a.m. You fall back to sleep, and hours pass. You check the time again. It is now 3.04. Your alarm rings at 7 a.m. You turn it off and sigh, hands still on the button. When you swing your legs over the side of the bed a moment later, the clock reads 7 p.m., do not fall asleep at the library. The library closes at 12. No one will bother to wake you when 12 o'clock comes. Six hours of sleep is not enough. You are still beat. Eight hours of sleep is not enough. You are still worn out. 12 hours of sleep is not enough. You are still ready to drop. Thank you. Great job. 
one day on planet sweatpants in sweatpants universe there was a guy named thomas and he wore sweatpants with talking pockets every day the day when his dad named homer got a new dvd player he found old food behind the tv he yelled there's food behind the tv that's disgusting he knew that thomas did it because he had a funny face and is the only other person in the house that night when Thomas went to bed, Homer tested out the new DVD player by watching a scary R-rated movie. And it was in one of the scariest parts when food and other things that were on the ceiling fell on Homer's head and he screamed like a little kid. After he was done, he ate a big bean and cheese burrito from Taco Bell. He then kept doing big loud farts. It, it stunk up the whole universe for three days and woke everyone up. A few people in San Diego on planet Earth uh, heeded it and, and asked the person next to them, what was that? <laughs> then three days later, everything was back to normal with food hiding in places and on the ceiling and wall, the end. <laughs> Author, here's your phone. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Olivia Loudon is in the house. Yes, there she is. Just wrap this a little, little bit. Oops, that's tight. Is that good like this, maybe? Um, yeah. A lot of stories start off with some sort of shock, something to jolt you out of your daydream and pull you into the ride. This is not one of those stories. This story doesn't need to pull you in because it's already there. In fact, it's always been there, hovering at the back of your mind, the same place you keep old phone numbers and song lyrics, and it's been waiting, waiting for an opportunity to crawl to the surface of your mind and take the controls. And it will, just a few moments. After you finish reading these words or hearing them, you're going to get up and you're going to walk away, but you will not be the same. You will never be the same, no matter how much you wish you could go back when you're laying awake at night, listening to the sound of your own ragged breaths. This is a story that now owns you, owns your breathing patterns and your blinks and the strange itch you just noticed, and when you go to sleep tonight, you'll be telling yourself not to look in the closet or under the bed, because you know there's nothing watching you the same way you know a story can't make you scratch an itch. This story doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an end, either. The end comes and you can forget it, and the harder you try, the more it stays. That's it. My best friend in the entire building, Jennifer Franson, is in the house. Where? There's Jennifer. I'm Jennifer Franson, and this story is called A Spot of Trouble. The Great Red Spot, Judy repeated. An immense storm system in the atmosphere of Jupiter, Margaret recited wearily, larger in diameter than the Earth with 400-mile-per-hour winds. The front door opened. Oh, here's Kelsey, said Margaret. Kelsey, these are the Smiths, Judy and Frank. So, I hear you're interested in astronomy, said Frank. Kelsey shook her head. I just like the great red spot. 
She turned to Margaret. Can I go now, Mom? I'm working on a project. Her mother nodded, then gave a baffled smile as Kelsey left the room. I don't understand it at all. We thought, great, a budding astronomer. But when we bought her a telescope for her birthday, she showed absolutely no interest. It's the great red spot and nothing but the great red spot. Kids do get these little fixations, said Frank. I guess so. At least it's better than my sister Allison. When she was Kelsey's age, she was obsessed with witchcraft. She had half the kids in the neighborhood convinced she was a witch. Judy looked puzzled. Allison? Oh, you won't remember her. She died when she was 13, before we moved here. In her room, Kelsey pulled her tools out from their hiding place. She could hear the visitors leaving. She put everything in order, then opened the little book and began intoning the strange, difficult words. She heard the wind beginning to pick up. It's working, she thought, triumphantly. It's working. Here, Spot, she murmured. Here, Spot. Thank you, Jennifer. So many wonderful people here today, but the universe is now telling me that I should call up Dominic Tarantino. Can you hear me? Yes. So do talk into it if you Okay. I'm a Point Loma grad. Um, currently working in the technology space. I studied literature, so moved into technology. Um, I consider myself a closet poet. Um, and I have a couple poems to read for you guys. This is called A Wise Program on Mars. I cannot chisel without the permission of this stone cannot break the stone. The stone permits. Permitting, the stone makes a sound. Denying, the sound is different, or something must be debugged. Hitting, I listen for the answer. Chink, chank, proceed or stop. This mining code, for me, especially written. There is a code for you that you know not of. I must ask, as my chisel is pointed to the stone. Master, the noise my chisel makes when struck upon the stone, a conversation. This is called Bridge of Obfuscation. The sensible nonsense of zero-knowledge proof protects the inner workings of truth's secret like beauty, encrypts and captivates. In the absence of form, we sense a revelation in its hollows, a garbling wild world of Unicode, atoms, qubits. Why abstract away beauty and truth? Who encrypts it? Who obfuscates it? Protect nothing but a friend or a lover. The beauty of all that is and will ever be known, that will ever be pursued, is a grand obfuscation, compelling, complex, forever unknown universe. We, its autonomous agent, send ourselves into its its wildest depths, hoping to be captured by it to discover some truth. 
Even crowning artificial intelligence cannot interrogate, cannot disassemble the instant message of the world, of history, of humanity, will silent be. This is what is utterly known, an infinitesimal known, which is an infinitesimal unknown the same. Exactly what the critical message, the beauty, the true code, the source code, the destination is, its values are only shadows of what might be far afield in dreams or long meditations, shadows of red, of blue, green, and astral white. No feed of inputs, no design will reveal what it is or is not. There is no password, all passage is false, not one event lighted to mark truth's paradigm. The, this weight upon the world, the tools used to examine, too primitive. Okay, earlier today you heard our two youngest readers, but now their father, Peter Flynn, is coming up to read a work of someone else. So that means that Daniel and Liam, you have to be on your best behavior in the back row while your father here, Peter, reads a work from Gabriel Pan. Isn't that right? Correct. Step right up. This is Beware Emerging Markets by Gabriel Pan. You do realize this could take down the whole operation, the CEO tossed the report to his chief legal counsel. We may get first shot at the new markets, but failure to develop jeopardizes our exclusive rights everywhere else. Don't start, Lou. We've been over this. The issue isn't the compact. You're saying it's me. Is that it, B? The voice was dangerously calm. Not at all. Legal pointed to the tastefully lit case of sales awards, tactfully deflecting his boss's ira. Home office doesn't give those out as party favors. Everyone knows you're the best market developer we have. Seems that opinion is in some doubt. The big guy called today. B felt himself tighten. Attention from that high up was rarely good. What did he say? The gist was, given a year in pristine, untapped market with unlimited number of potential clients, why haven't you made a single sale or shipped even one unit back to home? They all think we're going soft, B. Surely they understand we had to overcome a language barrier. Home office knows that got resolved months ago. They'd never believe that none of our new friends comprehend free trade, value exchange, or contract law. That's the hitch. Without comprehension, nothing we get them to sign is enforceable. Wow, maybe we do need to look at the compact. Lucifer put his head in his hands. Freaking interstellar aliens, we don't even know if they have souls. Gabriel Pan, everybody. The next reader is one of the newest librarians in the building, Nina Mamakunian. Nina is in the house, and she'll be reading one of my stories because I wanted her to read something. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Tower of Torture, one word remained. The architectural tourists of Galaxy 12 were able to preserve three of Earth's Pereira buildings. They knew the Transamerica Tower in San Francisco was an office building. 
the Pereira building in Japan was most certainly an elective health spa hostel. The structure in La Jolla, California was harder to define. Ground level and below were wired for information, but all the upper levels were regulated to cellulose print folios. The cellulose papyrus materials were a primitive hypoallergenetic means of accessing information. So perhaps this was a hospital for patients with wireless sensitivity issues. This might explain the walls and walls of windows on the upper floors. Full-spectrum light bathing as curative to WSI. It's also possible that this multi-tiered La Jolla building was a holding area for convicted hackers who were forcibly quarantined from connectivity. One word remained on the structure's cement nameplate, making the prison aspect seem likely. In Earth's Germanic languages, Geisel meant hostage. Amanda Kassar wanted to read, and she's reading a story from someone else who couldn't be here. Isn't that true, Amanda? Please join me up here. Amanda Kassar. Truly talk into it if you can. The airlock was locked again, and she was on the wrong side of it again. For the millionth time, Karen cursed the planetfall accident that had meant the, the airlock to their living and working quarters needed to be cycled completely shut and locked every time so they didn't lose precious oxygen. For what felt like the millionth time, she headed around the sprawling habitat to the first window, then the next, knocking and waving till a fellow astronaut pioneer heard or saw her and let her in. At mealtime, she brought up a simple question. Can't we rig some sort of doorbell so we don't waste energy and suit oxygen when this happens? Team member Greg, their go-to guy when it came to improvising, promised to get right on it. He was as good as his word, and the next day, a buzzer hung in just the right place for a clumsily suited hand to mash it. Three days later, the entire crew gathered for dinner, usually the only meal they all managed to share in their two busy days terraforming the empty planet. As they started to pass the simple food around, they heard a noise they'd quickly become accustomed to. The doorbell rang. Amanda read a story from our very good friend Phyllis DeBlanche, who couldn't be here today. Many of us know her as a longtime employee of San Diego Magazine, and these days she's doing even bigger and better things. And thank you for reading Phyllis's story, Amanda. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. The universe wants me to call someone else now. Oh, Kamil Gudzinski is going to read a story from a writer who couldn't be here this evening. And join me here, Kamil. Is that good for you? Should go higher? Should go higher. How about that? Very good. 
A story by Catherine Hernandez. We forget things as we get older. I've always had a firm fear of growing old and vowed to never turn 70, the age dementia first hit my father. I turned 69 last year, and 355 days later, I joined the code. The code is consciousness never-ending. It is a gateway into the internet of connected minds, adaptable to each member's preferences and accessible only by their consent. To be a part of the code is to know, experience and be all things forever. Experience eternity like a god with the universe as your playground a certain and reachable afterlife for all. Death has become our pet. But forever can still be very daunting for some people, some people like me. I never wanted to live forever. I just, I just don't want to forget. I still have a family I want to see grow up and live good lives with me. People who I want to remember for as long as possible. The creators of the code understood this, and so gave each one of us a separate exit number. We had to memorize it raw. No papers, no retrieval passwords or second tries of any sort. No one can kill us but ourselves. Unfortunately, the vast majority of coders, as we call ourselves, are already old and forgetful. After 50, I stopped trusting things on my memory alone. And I wish I would have kept that rule, because now I can remember everyone and everything, everything except one. Is Neil Bezrukov in the house? Hooray! Could you join us up here and read your story? Begin quote. Screens revealed the stillness of the hallways connecting the complexes of the National Zoological Museum, its center anchored by the towering skeleton of a blue whale. Each wing of the building mapped itself to biological communities where a collection of plants and animals was thought to once exist. Red grass and peaks of ice rendered using blastic and foam formed islands of tundra. Thick paper pines and spruces dotted the carpeted landscapes of grassland and taiga, and styrofoam canyons and cliffs painted with orange and brown loomed with dark shades over fields of dotted lines, named features, and pastel representations of flora and fauna. Kids would read out the name of that once great land with slurred consonants, their voice bringing life to the static figurines who'd in their ears been sheltered by the fragments of a map so large and detailed that it was as if that land had never crumbled at all. Parents rehearsed scenes from reimagined and reconstructed moments flickering on the screen, pity in their pursed lips for the creatures who now existed as the fiction of a past known only through memories inherited. One of the exhibits tells of a future populated only with plastic and chemical waste, out of nothing forms a bacterial civilization, inheritors of earth more efficient than any machine, a lust for life that makes human history seem like the glimmer of a distant star, decaying by the time we sense its light. End quote. 
purportedly from Xiaohu Songlian, a traveler's diary, date unknown. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. I'll have you autograph this for me later. Thank you. Here's a story from Christina Continelli, who couldn't be here today. I found the volume in the basement of the glass pyramid, deep within the Steinhaller collection of Old World Arcana, as it was known by the librarians, who were stewards of the vault-like stacks that rolled smooth upon their rails like clockwork. The work was referenced in the pyramid's construction plans by James Whitler, the architect of the glass pyramid, who had found the original manuscript through a nefarious occult book dealer in Chisnau, Albrecht Rostov. Both men met similar evil ends, succumbing to a mysterious brain fever after being found naked and raving in the street. After the demise of poor Whitler, the manuscript was added to the vast arcana collection of Berensteinhaller, a flamboyantly eccentric pillar of the old Hollywood studio system and mentor to Kenneth Anger. Steinhaller oversaw the completion of the pyramid's construction, but died in a fit during the opening celebrations. To call this a mere book is laughable. It is a communication device, a radio to the heavens. And that was Christina Continelli's piece. I think I need to ask if about Baram Karamand. He's here. Baram is here again. A return visit. Step right up. Is this a good height? I don't know. Just as the Earth rolls in space to make what's lit dark and what's dark lit, you can roll in time. If you were facing future, now you would face progressing past. You go through your memory with your back to your predictions because your memory dictates the past. All that you did not get to be in normal time will now let you know about what you're about to be in rotated time. The difference is the normal future was a world of possibilities, but the new future is a world of certainty. But what is certainty when it's unknown? And what happens to the cat chasing the mouse? Now the mouse's tail seems to chase the teeth of the cat, and the tail of the cat is wildly assessing the terrain as it escapes the harmless tail of the mouse. The legs tell the brain where they're going, and the brain tells the eyes what they see. No need to learn, as you know it all. So what does it feel like knowing all the potential pasts and not knowing the only possible future they could turn into for the observer? Well, the observer is not the observer anymore, since light is getting off the retina and returns to the star it came from before, our new observer. In a sense, things all go back to where they once belonged. Sound waves to undulating strings, sand grains to mountains, and men to their mother's hips. I mean, motherships. Thank you for that clever parsing at the end. Well, Peggy, you were so good. Peggy, Peggy, you really must read again. And is it, what, is it Michael Robinson's? It's Michael Robinson's from UC Riverside. Well, it's a UC person. You must get up and read his piece, Peggy. Thank you. I went to Riverside. 
Advice right up there with one swig, Socrates. You'll be fine come morning. I ran like a demon. My inner English major tossed out pandemonium, as if my id wanted to play word association. A place of all demons, paradise lost. English, pan, Greek, daimon. A melting pot word, west and east, conflating amicably to describe this world upending, this foot race for my life. Screw paradise. The wall, my hoped-for salvation, grew less amorphous. I closed on it, but more important, the shits with tiki torches closed on me. I imagined the cold of death's fingers, not yet the fingers themselves. I cursed my imagination. I wondered what Violet Jessup prayed. What got Miss Unsinkable, not Molly Brown, the other who made it through two sinking behemoths, Titanic and Britannic, Surviving Titanic, Titanic should give you a pass. Surviving that car in Charlottesville should be your lightning won't hit the same place twice moment. Mad men and English majors and gonzo journalists, right? Wicked sense of humor. Know the mind of God. Easier than trying to fathom what's get, what gets a belly laugh out of her. Fathom. Titanic. See what I did there? Might be my last moment alive and I make a bad, what would that be, English major? For an instant, heat and light run over me like inattentive ballroom dancers. I somehow keep my feet. That wall, six feet. Last time I hopped a wall, pray fool, pray. God, I was lucky in Charlottesville. Okay. That's Michael Robinson. Thank you, Peggy. Again, we were celebrating sci-fi microfiction, you know, reenacting some of the postcard-length stories that George Hay encouraged in the 1970s. Uh, the first to answer the call was from George Hay was Arthur C. Clarke and wrote a great postcard-length story. And we're still celebrating that genre right now. Thank you so much for coming today for short tales from the mothership. Thank you.